Hi, I'm Paul Jay, and welcome to the Analysis.News podcast. On the 75th anniversary of the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki on August 6th and August 9th, 1945, I think it's important to understand how the mass killing of civilians in war became acceptable and how U.S. public opinion and media, on the whole, supported the use of weapons of mass destruction. Now joining us to discuss this is Peter Kuznick. He's a professor of history and director of the Nuclear Studies Institute at American University. He's the author of Beyond the Laboratory, Scientists as Political Activists in the 1930s America. And with filmmaker Oliver Stone, he co-authored the 12-part Showtime documentary film series and book, both titled The Untold History of the United States. Thanks for joining us, Peter. Happy to be with you, Paul. So, so my understanding is that, you know, more or less in the 19th century, even up until the First World War, the as a tactic of war, a strategy of war, the mass killing of civilians was more or less considered outside the bounds of acceptable warfare. Now, of course, civilians got killed uh, and, and, and there was a certain amount of targeting, but mostly armies fought armies. But in the Second World War, that really changes where so civilians on a mass basis become targets. And it's not just by any means the uh, Nazis that do it. It's the British and the Americans as well. And so so that this this targeting of civilians and, and before the use of the uh, atomic bomb, uh, I think, created the conditions to help make it acceptable to make the decision to drop the bomb. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the history of the development of this large-scale killing of civilians and then up to lead us up to the decision to drop the bomb? You're correct to say that this really is a phenomenon that occurs during World War II. And that's partly because even in World War I, uh, air warfare was just taking off. Uh, in World War I, there was some bombing of civilians. World War I is really the first time that airplanes are used to drop bombs on a large scale. And that happens during World War I. By the end of the war, that was happening much more commonly. In the interwar period, the British were using bombings to um, secure their empire in places like Iraq in the 1920s. But still, at the start of the war, there was a general sense that killing civilians deliberately was off limits. The U.S. State Department in 1937 condemned this and said public opinion in the U.S. regards such methods uh, as the slaughter of civilian populations, in particular women and children. U.S. public opinion regards that as barbarous. Such acts are a violation of the elementary principles of those standards of human conduct which are being developed as an essential part of modern civilization. The State Department was very clear in its moral condemnation. Franklin Roosevelt, at the, when the war broke out in Europe in 39, Roosevelt called upon combatants to refrain from this inhuman barbarism, and, but it was already starting. The, the most interesting comment I've seen about it at the time, before the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, was by Dwight MacDonald. 
Americans, Mike McDonald, founder of Partisan Review and other, other publications, politics, uh, says in the summer of 45 before Hiroshima, he says, I remember when Franco's planes bombed Barcelona for the first time. What a thrill of unbelieving horror and indignation went through our nerves at the idea of hundreds, yes, hundreds of civilians being killed. It seems impossible that that was less than 10 years ago. Franco's Air Force was a toy compared to the sky-filling bombing fleets deployed in this war. And the hundreds killed in Barcelona have become the thousands killed in Rotterdam and Warsaw, the tens of thousands in Hamburg and Cologne, the hundreds of thousands in Dresden, and the millions in Tokyo. A month ago, the papers reported that over one million Japanese men, women, and children have perished in the fires set by a single B-29 raid on Tokyo. One million. I saw no expression of horror or indignation in any American newspaper or magazine of sizable circulation. We have grown callous to massacre, and the concept of guilt has spread to include whole populations. Our hearts are hardened, our nerves steady, our imaginations under control as we read the morning paper. King Mithridates is said to have immunized himself against poison by taking small doses, which he increased slowly. So the gradually increasing horrors of the last decade have made each of us, to some extent, a moral Mithridates, immunized against human sympathy. So that was the process. And Tell us again who that was and when. Dwight McDonald, uh, very, very brilliant, progressive political analyst in the 1930s and 40s. Uh, and, th- and that was the reality. You know, in the beginning, people were horrified that hundreds of people would be killed. <clears throat> and by the end of the war, we had grown so callous you look at, you know, of course, the Germans started and the British retaliated and said, we're going to pay them back tenfold uh, and they're targeting civilian populations, trying to kill civilians. The reality was that bombing was very, very inaccurate during the beginning of World War II, uh, especially uh, when against heavily defended targets. In 1941, for example, the British reported that only 22% of bombers got within five miles of targets and only 7% got within five miles of heavily defended targets. So the British would therefore, they couldn't do precise bombing, so they would do mass urban area bombing. The interesting thing is that the U.S. avoided that until the end of 43. The U.S. went after transportation sites. They went after industrial sites key strategic nodal points in the German economy and war machine. But we avoided urban bombing because it was so offensive to our ethics at the time. And that begins to change. And that begins to change at the end of 43 and 44. But still, for the most part, in the European war, we avoided targeting civilian populations. Of course, it happens in Dresden, and that's horrific, and we regret that. But overall, we avoided it. it. The British were doing massive firebombings of German cities, and that seemed to help create an acceptability to doing such. Not, some acceptability, but for the United States, not really yet. The attitude was still that this was hor- horrendous uh, and inhumane. For example, General Ira Eaker comments, he said, 
Uh, Hap Arnold, the head of the Air Force, feared the reaction of the U.S. public to urban area bombing of women and children. He pointed to the large percentage of German people in this country and those who felt we should have not become involved in a war with Germany at all. But 90% of Americans would have killed every Japanese. So, I mean, there was a big difference in the attitude in the European war, where we showed some restraint, and the Pacific war, where we showed no restraint. In fact, Major General Haywood Hansel was the head of the 21st Bomber Command that was doing the bombing in Japan. And he resisted orders to abandon precision bombing at the end of 44. Uh, he didn't want to bomb urban areas. So Hap Arnold sacked him and installed General Curtis LeMay as commander of the 21st Bomber Command. And LeMay had no such compunctions. And the large-scale bombing begins the night of March 9th through 10th, when 324 aircraft attacked Tokyo uh, and killed uh, probably 100,000 people, destroyed 16 square miles, injured a million, at least 41,000 seriously injured, more than a million homeless. The air reached 1,800 degrees Fahrenheit. LeMay says that the victims were scorched and boiled and baked to death. He referred to this as his masterpiece. So he ha- he must have had to okay this. This is while Roosevelt is still alive. This is a, a month before Roosevelt's death. Uh well, he, yeah. I mean, they, what we know is that the military, that the political leaders did not micromanage the military side of this. They put this uh, responsibility in the hands of Arnold and uh, people in Tokyo. But uh, Roosevelt bears responsibility for this. And, and not just Roosevelt, but the bombing got so bad that, uh, you know, McNamara, was involved in this planning in, in, in the Pacific War. And he was on uh, LeMay's staff. And LeMay said to them, if we lose this war, you know, we're all going to be tried as war criminals because of the strategic bombing. And McNamara has acknowledged that and said, oh, it should have been because of the killing, the killing, targeting Japanese cities. We we used mostly incendiary bombs. By the end of the war, three quarters of the bomb loads were incendiaries, and they were designed to burn down Japanese paper cities, paper and bamboo cities. And they succeeded. Destruction reached 99.5% in the city of Toyama. Oliver and I write about this in Untold History. And so the city the leaders in the city of Toyama invited us to come to Toyama a couple of years ago. And we met with some of the victims of the U.S. bombing in Toyama. We did very big public events, and they actually began a, a bombing museum in Toyama uh, based on our, our visit there. But the U.S. firebombs more than 100 Japanese cities. And it gets so bad that in uh, June of 1945, Secretary of War Stimson says to Truman, says, I don't want to have the U.S. get the reputation of outdoing Hitler in atrocities. Brigadier General Bonnefellers, who was an aide to MacArthur, described the bombing of Japan in a confidential memo as one of the most ruthless and barbaric killings of non-combatants in all history. I mean, so this was clearly the policy in Japan was very different, and it was... uh, went against everything decent that the U.S. was supposed to be doing in 
supporting. It wasn't just the U.S., of course. The British, Freeman Dyson, the renowned physicist, was uh, part of the Tiger Force fleet of 300 British, British bombers and was set to go over to Okinawa. And he says, I found this continuing slaughter of defenseless Japanese even more sickening than the slaughter of well-defended Germans, but still I didn't quit. By that time, I had been at war so long that I could hardly remember peace. No living poet had words to describe that emptiness of the soul which allowed me to go on killing without hatred and without remorse. But Shakespeare understood it, and he gave Macbeth the words, I am in blood, stepped in so that, should I wade no more, returning were as tedious as going o'er. You know, and that, that was what we, we did. So yes, we did lower the moral threshold. Strategic bombing and pervasive racism lowered the moral threshold, and when we did drop the bomb, atomic bombs, there was almost no expression of regret and remorse, uh, not be, in terms of the, the killing the Japanese civilians, women and children. Was it seen as just an extension of the firebombing? Uh, on a moral level, I think it was. The U.S. media reacted very strongly to the atomic bombings. But it was as H.V. Kaltenborn says in his evening address uh, on August 6th, his national radio address, he said uh, that we've unleashed a Frankenstein and someday the weapons that we're using against Japan will come back to haunt us and we'll be victimized ourselves. And that was the refrain that was widely repeated by the American media at the time, August 6th, 7th, 8th, 9th, up to the end of the war. Uh, that, as Edward Murrow says, there's no sense of exhilaration and elation over the end of the war. There's this sense of remorse and foreboding and the fear that eventually we're going to be victim of these same horrific weapons that we're using now. And what you see is that newspaper after newspaper, city of Minneapolis or Denver, what they do is they have a map of their city and they show that what would happen in terms of the layers of destruction uh, if a bomb the size of the Hiroshima or Nagasaki bombs were dropped on their cities. So that was fascinating. So there is none of that attitude of, you know, wow, we gave it to him. Truman, in his initial statement about the atomic bomb, said this is revenge for Pearl Harbor. And so that's what he talks about initially. Then they later changed the idea that, oh, we had to drop the bomb. It was the only way to avoid an invasion. Hundreds of thousands of Americans and millions of Japanese would have been killed in the invasion. And that's why the bombings were necessary and humane and benevolent. What, what does this tell us about a very complex person of FDR who's seen as this, you know, sort of progressive visionary, uh, certainly, you know, in defense of private property and capitalism, as he said, but, you know, heading towards a kind of social democracy, really, when you see what he was trying to achieve. Uh, that being said, this this all had to happen under his watch, the, de the development of the bomb uh, and the, the fire bombings are as bad or worse than the actual destruction caused by the nuclear bomb. Uh, what does it tell us about who Roosevelt was? I don't know what it tells us about Roosevelt. Um, I mean, Roosevelt, I know what Roosevelt said about using the atomic bombs. He was very ambivalent about it. 
Uh, he talked about it. Uh, initially, the U.S. develops the bomb under Roosevelt as a deterrent against the German bomb. You know, if we go back to that early history, after the Germans split the uranium atom in December of 1938, Scientists knew that meant theoretically the capability of developing atomic bombs. But the American military was not interested in what that represented because they thought that it would take years and this war bomb would, new weapon wouldn't be ready in this war. And so they wanted to focus on other things. The ones who got the United States to build the bomb were the emigres, the the physicists who had escaped from Nazi-occupied Europe and come to the United States and were terrified of what it would mean if Hitler got a hold of atomic bombs. So they uh, tried to pressure American leaders to develop the bomb, but Americans were not interested. That was why on July 16th, 1939, Leo Szilard and Eugene Wigner, two brilliant Hungarian physicists, went out to see Einstein, who was vacationing in Peconic, Long Island, and told Einstein that the Germans had split the uranium atom. Einstein didn't even know. Uh, And Einstein wrote that famous letter to Roosevelt urging the U.S. to begin the bomb project. And it got off the ground very, very slowly. It doesn't really take shape until the end of 1941 and the beginning of 1942 with the establishment of the Manhattan Project. But it was because the bomb, the idea was that the bomb would be a deterrent against a German bomb. There was no thought initially to using the bomb against Japan because we knew Japan did not have the technological and scientific ability at that point to develop their own bombs. Ellsberg writes in Doomsday Machine that somewhere around, I forget the date he gives, but somewhere in the 42, 43 period, I believe, uh, the Americans find out that Hitler is not building a bomb, that they that they actually, one of the theories is that when they try to test one of these bombs, it might set the entire atmosphere on fire. And Hitler actually decides it's not worth the risk to set the entire world on fire. Well, that story is a little different. What happened was um, Oppenheimer, uh, Arthur Holly Compton told Oppenheimer to develop a brain trust in the summer of 42. And Oppenheimer and Beta and Teller and the other luminaries uh, went out to Berkeley and they were doing their deliberations. And during that, they all froze in, in terror uh, because they realized that an atomic bomb could either ignite all the nitrogen in the atmosphere or the hydrogen in the seas and set the world on fire. So they stop what they're doing. Oppenheimer gets on a train, rushes out to see Arthur Holly Compton, who is vacationing in Michigan, and lays this out to him. And Compton says, better to live in slavery to the Nazis than to bring down the final curtain on mankind. And they halt the bomb project. They go back out to Berkeley and they realize they didn't didn't account for all the heat that would be absorbed by radiation. It's complicated, but they realize that the odds of blowing up the world were only three in a million. They say those odds are acceptable. And so they go back and they continue the bomb project. Uh, Hitler actually did begin it in 42. Uh, Paul Hartek, who had been a a Rutherford student, uh, uh, alerted the German war office in April of 42 to the possibility of making atomic bombs. And they began the project. Uh, But then Hitler and Speer decided 
that rather than spend so much resources on a weapon that wouldn't be available for another two years or more, maybe not in this war, they focus instead on the V1 and V2 rockets. The debate there is whether Werner Heisenberg, who was the head of the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute, actually was undermining the bomb project deliberately, as he later claimed. But uh, we find out in late 44 that the uh, Germans aren't developing a bomb. And that does not stop the U.S. from continuing to develop theirs once it's known the Germans are not. No. In fact, Oppenheimer says that what at that point they sped it up faster than ever because the pressure was to have it ready for when Truman met with Stalin at Potsdam. And so Oppenheimer said we were worked around the clock at breakneck speed to have it ready for Potsdam. Uh, the, the, uh, one of the things about it is that when they found out that Germany was not developing a bomb, only one scientist left the Manhattan Project, and that was Joseph Rotblat, wonderful, wonderful man who later gets the Nobel Peace Prize. And Rotblat uh, left on principle when he found out. But it was also Rotblat who Leslie Groves said, uh, Groves uh, shocked Rotblat over dinner in March of 44. Uh, when he said, uh, you realize, of course, that the main purpose of this project is to subdue the Russians. I mean, that's, Groves was clear about that, that the bomb project was designed as a tool against the Soviet Union. He says, Groves later said, there was never from about two weeks from the time I took charge of this project, any illusion on my part that Russia was our enemy and the project was conducted on that basis. And the scientists went along with it based on this, even though they'd all gotten into it because they thought they were going to stop Hitler from having a bomb. Well, the scientists, at some point, the momentum of doing it just carried them away. And they wanted, and not all the scientists, because many of them urged the government not to use the bomb. In fact, Leo Zillard uh, circulated a petition after the, the, they formed committees at Met Lab in Chicago. And in June of 45, the Frank Committee, headed by James Frank, said that even if the United States develops the bomb, which probably we shouldn't use it because it's going to lead to an uncontrollable arms race with the Soviet Union and put the world in mortal danger. Uh, and then they, they, they blocked them from circulating that statement. And so Zillard drew up his own petition and says, we're opening the door to an era of slaughter on an unimaginable scale. He said, these weapons can be made as big and powerful as people wanted. And that's what they understood uh, for quite some time. It was back in 42 that Edward Teller said, said to the other luminaries in, in, in uh, Oppenheimer's group, so let's not waste our time on the atomic bomb. It's trivial. Let's immediately go for the super bomb. And Oppenheimer briefs the members of the interim committee on May 31st, America's top political and military leaders, and says that within three years, the U.S. will likely have weapons between 700 and 7,000 times as powerful as the Hiroshima bomb. And we knew that. We went into this with our eyes wide open. And that's, you know, that's why I call the apocalyptic narrative, because Truman understood this better than anybody in his own primitive way. Truman writes that he first got seriously briefed on the bomb by James Burns on Truman's first day in office, April 13th. And Truman writes, 
that uh, this was Burns told me this was a weapon great enough to destroy the whole world. Truman gets a fuller briefing on the bombings from Stimson and Groves, Secretary of War Stimson and General Groves, the head of the Manhattan Project, on April 25th, after which he writes, Truman writes, Stimson says gravely that he didn't know whether we should or could use the bomb because he was afraid that it was so powerful it could end up destroying the whole world. I felt the same fear as he and Groves continued to talk about it when I read Groves' 24-page report. And then uh, the kicker for me is on July 25th when Truman is at Potsdam and he gets the full briefing on how powerful the bomb test at Almogordo was. And Truman says, we've discovered the most terrible weapon in history. This may be the fire destruction prophesied in the Euphrates Valley era after Noah and his fabulous ark. Not a more powerful bomb but the fire destruction. And still knowing that, Truman proceeds to use it, knowing there are alternatives, knowing the Japanese are defeated, knowing that they're trying to surrender, knowing that the Soviets are about to come in, and that the Japanese will certainly surrender then. And he goes ahead and he uses this in precisely the way he was warned was most likely to trigger an arms control, an arms race between the US and the Soviets that could spell the doom of all life on our planet. I mean, and, and Truman is not bloodthirsty, evil individual, uh, but his his actions certainly are incomprehensible from an ethical standpoint. Well, trying to make them comprehensible, what motivates him? The Soviet Union does not have the bomb at that point. There was the opportunity to close it all down after at, after the Second World War and not enter this world of potential, even imminent, total annihilation. Uh, one of the things that Ellsberg talks about now is how much the commercial interests of what you know Eisenhower called the military-industrial complex, that a lot of the impetus for developing all kinds of weaponry, including nuclear weaponry, but also the impetus for creating this Cold War, he, that there was a commercial imperative that was one of the things that drove it. Do you, do you agree with that? I agree with it, but I consider that less than the military and strategic imperatives. Um, you know, they, certainly during the bomb project in World War II, the commercial motives were not driving force at all. Commercial interests were not part of the decision to use the bomb. I think the, the military-industrial complex does uh, does certainly play an important role in the development of American armaments and American research and this, the misdirection of American scientific research at the universities and the laboratories after the war. I mean, I think that's all very important. And you could talk about the commercial interest in the sense that so many of the top leaders during World War II and after were these dollar-a-year men who came from Wall Street. I mean, if we, I've, I did an accounting at one point about all the people who were the main planners of the Cold War policy who came out of Wall Street, uh, whether it's the Forrestal. I mean, you go through the list, almost all of them came from that world. So the way they saw the world was a banker's worldview in developing an American empire. Uh, but, uh, but that, to my mind, doesn't really explain the use of the bombs in World War Two, because American leaders knew full well that there were two ways to end the war without using the atomic bombs. 
and they were very clear about this and they were explicit about it. And the first way was to tell the Japanese they could keep the emperor because the main stumbling block to Japanese surrender was the idea that the emperor would be tried as a war criminal. Uh, Now, the emperor to them was a deity to most Japanese. MacArthur's Southwest Pacific Command issued a background briefing the summer of 45 that said, execution of the emperor to them would be comparable to the crucifixion of Christ to us. All would fight to die like ants. Leahy, Stimson, Forrestal, almost everybody around Truman told him that this might be impossible to get the Japanese to surrender under any circumstances. They implored Truman to change the surrender terms. Joseph Grew, who was the, at times the acting secretary of state in 45, former U.S. ambassador to Japan, very conservative man. Uh, there, Joseph Grew was one of the only ones who knew anything about Japan. And he urged Truman over and over again, change the surrender terms. Not just the people in the administration, but you've also got the Washington Post writing an editorial in June of 45 called Fatal Phrase, saying they've got to change the surrender terms. We've got the leader of the Republicans in the Senate, Senator White, making a speech in July of 45, urging Truman to clarify the surrender terms. They all knew that that was a huge stumbling block. And we knew it in part because we'd broken the Japanese codes. We were intercepting their telegrams. And they said over and over again explicitly, these are especially the telegrams from Foreign Minister Togo in Tokyo to Ambassador Sato in Moscow. Asked trying to get the Soviets to intervene on Japan's behalf to get better surrender terms. And Togo and Sato back and forth saying the only obstacle to surrender is the demand for unconditional surrender. We could have peace tomorrow if the Americans would recognize our honor and our future existence, if they would change, if they would allow us to keep the emperor on the throne. Back and forth explicitly. And Truman knew that because Truman refers to the intercepted July 18th cable as the telegram from the Jap emperor asking for peace. Those are Truman's words. Everybody around him shared that understanding. Uh, As Walter Brown, who was uh, James Burns' assistant, commented on the USS Augusta on the way back from Japan on August 3rd, uh, three days before the atomic bomb, says, aboard the Augusta, the president, Admiral Leahy, and Burns agree the Japanese are looking for peace. I mean, that was very, very clear. It was obvious to everybody. Uh, and we also know it from uh, the, from the Japanese war cabinet meetings at the time. Again, explicit comments along those lines. Uh, but, but Truman, instead of listening to almost all of his advisors, listened to James Burns. And Burns kept telling him, uh, don't change the surrender terms. Uh, If you allow them to keep the emperor, you'll be politically crucified. Now, who was Burns and why did he have so much influence? My understanding is even people like Dwight Eisenhower were against dropping the bomb. uh, Why why did Burns have so much sway with Truman? Truman had a very difficult childhood. He um, was born to John Peanuts Truman, who was about 5'3", 5'4", inches tall and would go around picking fights with guys a foot taller and beating them up to show how tough he was. 
He really wanted a macho son. Harry, his firstborn, didn't fit the bill. He was forced to wear he had what he had, they called hypermetropia, flat eyeballs. He wore these these thick uh, thick glasses. He couldn't roughhouse, couldn't play sports, and the other kids would always treat him very badly and chase him home. He'd go home crying, and his mother would greet him at the door and say, "Harry, don't worry. You were meant to be a girl anyway." And so he had very he had a lot of psychological issues. And as a failure in most aspects of life, he wasn't able to go to college, not because he wasn't smart enough, of course, but because his family didn't have money. And he went to work on his father's farm and he went to three businesses and they all went bankrupt and was a failure in life. As he says to his daughter uh, at, at turning 49, he says, tomorrow I'll be 49 for all the good in the world. They may as well take away the 40. I may as well be nine years old for all the good I've done in the world. And so he's at age 50, He's going to drive. So he does well in World War One, uh, and he comes back and he gets offered a job by Boss Pendergast, who runs the Pendergast machine in Kansas City, and uh, and is a dirty, corrupt machine. Truman is about as honest as they come, uh, and but at age fifty, he felt he was going nowhere. Uh, he wanted to run for Congress. Pendergast overlooked him. And so he was going to tell Pendergast on his 50th birthday that he's going back to the farm and leaving the machine. Pendergast meets with him and says, no, you can't do that. We want to run you for the Senate. Truman says, run me for the Senate? What do I know about the world? I just know how to build courthouses or roads here in Missouri. Uh, Pendergast says, don't worry. We'll get you elected. and We'll get people to tell you what to do. He does get him elected. Truman goes there and the other senators shun him. They call him the senator from Pendergast. They won't give him the time of day. This is 1934. The one person who befriends him is James Burns. And so while Truman is isolated there and shunned, Burns, who's a very prominent senator from South Carolina, reaches out and befriends Truman. Truman is very grateful for that. When when Truman is running for re-election in 1940, Roosevelt didn't even support him. Uh, and Truman was coming in third. It looked like he was going to lose. Pendergast couldn't help him because he was in federal prison in Kansas City. So Truman then, at the last minute, turns to the Hannigan-Dickman machine, the corrupt machine that runs St. Louis. And they cobble it together. They give him enough support, and he barely ekes out a victory in 1940. So, But Truman had this relationship with Burns. And when Roosevelt, you know the story that Truman should never have become vice president in 1944, uh, that the man who was vice president between 41 and 45, Henry Wallace, was the second most popular man in the United States. Gallup released a poll asking potential voters who they wanted on the ticket as vice president in 44, 65% of potential voters said they wanted Wallace back as vice president. 2% said they wanted Harry Truman. Okay, so but Truman gets in there. He's vice president for 82 days. Roosevelt dies. Truman becomes president on April 12th, 1945, a day that shall live in infamy. Uh, And uh, so... Truman, on April 13th, his first day in office, Secretary of the Navy Forrestal sends his private plane down to Spartanburg, South Carolina, to bring James Burns back to Washington. Truman was desperate. He sits down with Burns and he says, I don't know anything. Roosevelt didn't talk to me about what was going on. I don't know the agreements at Yalta. I don't know anything. Fill me in on everything. 
and Burns then starts to lay it out that the Soviets can't be trusted, that you know that uh, they're breaking their agreements. So, that, so Truman, who was inclined to think that way anyway, starts hearing it from Burns. Uh, and even though that was the opposite of what Roosevelt believed, and Roosevelt said right up to his dying day, Roosevelt was sure that the U.S. and the Soviets would get along after the war. And, Wall- and Wallace, his vice president, was very much for cooperation with the Soviet Union. And Wallace stayed in the cabinet. Roosevelt begs him to stay in the cabinet as Secretary of Commerce. And from that position, he wages a, a fight for more than a year, for almost a year and a half, against Truman's Cold War nuclear proliferation policies from inside the cabinet till finally Truman get, fires him in September of 1946. Uh, so, so that's why he turns to Burns and he trusts Burns and he looks to Burns and he says from the first day that I'm, you know, I, I can't make you my Secretary of State now because we're finishing up the uh, negotiations for the United Nations. But as soon as that's over, I'm going to make you Secretary of State, but I want you to be my main advisor from behind the scenes. And so he looks to Burns for advice. And Burns urges him not to change his surrender terms. Burns is the one who poisons his mind about the Soviet Union more than pretty much anybody in the beginning. And uh, and so Burns is his trusted advisor, and he values Burns over all these other advisors. So why does all this matter now? Because it does, because those decisions help shape that we're living, continue to live in a world populated by more nuclear weapons and more destructive nuclear weapons, and including, let's jump ahead, to the Obama administration, where Obama, in during his term, decides to expand, I believe it's a trillion-dollar investment over 30 years, but most of it's spent in the first 10, and the Russians apparently are going to spend the same amount, or are spending, to... Uh, modernize and create a whole new uh, arsenal of nuclear weapons. In other words, we're into another uh, nuclear arms race. Um, so, uh, and, and, and it barely, a noise is made when this big expansion of nuclear weapons, and I have to make one note here, as much as I've been mostly critical of Biden's uh, foreign policy positions with the exception of Iran, apparently he was against doing this expansion. And Obama, Obama went ahead with it anyway. So where are we now? Oh, boy, we're a mess. We're a mess, number one, because, uh, well, what you're saying about Obama, we had great hope for Obama. Obama marched, had a huge anti-nuclear march in Central Park, a million-person march in, this, in, in 1982. Obama was there. Obama had written critical things uh, at Columbia about nuclear weapons. There was reason to believe that Obama would actually do something dramatic about it. He gives his Prague speech in June of 2009, in which he uh, calls for nuclear abolition. But even there, 
If you look at the wording carefully, it says the United States won't be the first country to give up its nuclear weapons, we'll be the last country. So Obama was never, you know, that's the thing about Obama. Even when he, his heart was in the right place, he never had the backbone to follow through on any of the good things that he thought or wanted to do. But uh, then he does pass, get passage of the New START Treaty, and it's a very important treaty because it limits the number of strategic nuclear weapons and it limits the number of delivery vehicles that you have. Uh, but as part of that, he agrees to this modernization, a 30-year modernization, uh, $1 trillion. Initially, the estimate then jumps to $1.2 trillion, and we now assume it's $1.7 trillion. This is going to cost over 30 years. A modernization of the entire nuclear arsenal, making it more efficient and more deadly, more lethal. And how do other countries respond? As you said, uh, Russia responds. Well, Russia really started back in 2003 when the U.S. pulls out of the ABM treaty. Then Russia decides, and as the U.S. is building its missile defenses, that they've got to find a way to circumvent it. And in March of 2018, in Vladimir Putin's State of the Nation address, he announces that Russia now has five new nuclear weapons all of which can circumvent American missile defenses. So all those tens of billion dollars that we spend are largely wasted at this point. So Russia is modernizing. The U.S. is modernizing. In fact, all nine nuclear powers are modernizing. But to make it worse, then, uh, and Obama gets the Nobel Peace Prize for that speech he made in Prague in nineteen in 2009. Uh, but then... Then update to Trump, uh, and, and we're really uh, in much more dangerous territory. Trump, from the beginning, at least Obama in his nuclear posture review, uh, does lower the status of nuclear weapons. Trump, in his nuclear posture review in 2018, elevates the status of nuclear weapons. Number one, what does that what does that mean? Elevated in terms of how early you might make such a choice? Yes, and the, and the circumstances under which you can make that decision. So it's not just going to be in terms of nuclear retaliation. It will be in terms of any kind of attack uh, on a, that has a fundamental impact on the United States. So that could be a cyber attack we can use nuclear weapons for now. Uh, other kinds of uh, WMD attacks. So it's not just in retaliation for a nuclear attack. Number one, Trump's attitude, and he says it explicitly, is what's the point of having nuclear weapons if we can't use them? To a sane person, that means get rid of nuclear weapons. To a madman like Trump, it means uh, make nuclear weapons more usable. And he talks about tactical nuclear weapons, battlefield, which which they which they he or uh, or people that think like him may think it's possible to use against non-nuclear powers, like for example Iran. Yes, uh, in fact, Cy Hirsch reported back in the George W. Bush administration that one of the things that was on the table when it looked like we were going to uh, invade Iran uh, or attack Iran was uh, the use of nuclear weapons. So, um, so yeah, so there's always that kind of planning. And the idea is that if Israel ever try to take out those nuclear facilities in Iran, that uh, they would have to use nuclear weapons in order to do so for the hardened targets, the underground targets. So, so in terms of uh, the Trump policy, 
Trump's first phone call he had with Vladimir Putin, Putin implores him to extend the New START Treaty when it expires in February of 2021. And just quickly, what are the most important parts of the START Treaty? Well, I guess we have to back up a little bit because you look at at Trump's record on this. uh, First thing he does is he dismantles the JCPOA, the Iran nuclear deal. That was a successful uh, nuclear deal as we've ever had. It was not just the United States. It was also uh, the other original nuclear powers in Germany that negotiated this. Russia played a very important role in negotiating that deal with Iran. It was a great deal from the American perspective and the Israeli perspective, even though Netanyahu did everything he could to undermine it. Uh, it, it basically shipped 97% of the enriched uranium outside of Iran. It mothballed a high percentage of Iran's nuclear reactors. It, it put the centrifuges. It um, put great limits on the amount and the, uh, the degree of enrichment that was acceptable for Japan for Iran's nuclear program. It was tremendously successful. There were uh, inspection after inspection of what was going on in Iran. The UN was reporting that this was working, and Trump tears it up. Okay, that's number one. Then he pulls the United States out of the INF Treaty, the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty, uh, in 2019. Then he pulls the United States out of the Open Skies Treaty. So the only piece left now of this nuclear architecture, the anti-nuclear, the arms control architecture, really, is the New START Treaty, which expires in February 2021. And the New START Treaty had put sharp limits on the number of strategic weapons that each side can deploy and on the number on the, on the delivery systems. Trump says, so Trump's on the phone with Putin and Putin says we have to extend the new Trump Star Treaty. Some, Trump excuses himself, puts the phone down and asks the people at the table, his advisors, what's the new Star Treaty? He didn't even know what it was. Idiot. Uh, and then uh, he gets back on and he says, no, no, I don't like that treaty. And so the understanding since then has been that the United States will likely withdraw from the New START Treaty. Now there are discussions going on, uh, and m- maybe the, even Trump will reconsider. Certainly Biden will renew the New START Treaty if once he's in power. In, ca- in, the, in the journalist Kaplan's book on nuclear weapons, he has a section where this uh, START Treaty, Obama's trying to get the Republicans to go along with it, and they don't want to, and they off say, well, if you'll put a trillion dollars into nuclear weapons, uh, then we'll go along. And so, and Biden apparently, according to the book, uh, said you don't need to make this kind of a deal to get to do the START Treaty because these guys never keep their word anyway. Uh, do you know anything about this whole thing? It tells us something about who Biden is if the story's true. I've seen that from other sources as well, that, um, that insiders knew that Obama was giving away the store unnecessarily. And that's always the history of the Obama presidency. He always negotiates against himself and gives away, makes concessions that were unnecessary. And what Obama has done there is open the door to this, the worst kind of nuclear arms race that, that couldn't happen because uh, as Biden apparently understood, 
this was a terrible policy to allow this kind of extension of uh, of this kind of um, you know again making it making it more lethal, making nuclear weapons more deadly, more efficient. There's just no rationale that justifies that. I also have heard that Biden pushed Obama to go to Hiroshima. And that was a, a great thing that Obama did. He undermined it by with what he did there, and even more so with what he said there. But it was certainly the right thing to go to Hiroshima. So, and Biden, we know that Biden is a super hawk or had been throughout much of his life. Uh, but maybe he's learned some lessons. Even Robert Gates now just came out with a new memoir, and, and Gates has said that he learned a lot of lessons. Gates was opposed to the uh, U.S. operations in Libya. You know, he said, um, or he was opposed to the bombing of Syria. He said, haven't we learned anything from Afghanistan and Iraq and Libya? You know, that these kinds of things have unintended consequences. I think Biden's learned some of that too. So So many of the former uh, secretaries of state and military leaders and others have been you know, sounding the alarm about the not just the possibility of an accidental or deliberate nuclear war, uh, they almost say it's inevitable. It's all, it's, it's as if there's a hundred percent chance there will be something, uh, except you know, if and when, but not if. I should say not if, just when. Um, don't the Bidens and others in the elites uh, understand how dangerous this is? And they, yet they seem, in terms of their policy, to be completely blind to it. Well, one of the ones who felt most strongly that way was Robert McNamara. Having lived through the Cuban Missile Crisis, McNamara shared Kennedy's and Khrushchev's understanding that when these crises start, they, become, they go out of control. You know, what, what terrified Kennedy and Khrushchev the most during the Cuban Missile Crisis is that even though they both were doing everything they could to, to prevent a war and a nuclear war, they both knew that they had lost control of the situation and that we avoided a, annihilation in 62 during the Cuban Missile Crisis, not by brilliant statesmanship, but by pure, blind, dumb luck. And that's why... Khrushchev writes to Kennedy afterwards and says, from evil, we must make some good. Our populations have felt the flames of thermonuclear war. What we have to do now is take advantage, turn that into something positive. We have to eliminate every conflict between our two nations that could cause another crisis. Uh, And Kennedy responded in kind. Norman Cousins helped, but Kennedy did respond. And toward the end, the two of them were moving toward ending the Cold War. I mean, we could have entered a period of great peace and prosperity for the human race. It didn't happen. Kennedy was assassinated. Khrushchev was ousted. And we went back to the old Cold War. But uh, that potential was there. So even now, the idea is that by accident or by design, and it's not just the U.S. and Russia and U.S. and China, and those U.S. relations with Russia and China are the worst they've been in decades. But you look at India and Pakistan. The latest scientific studies show that a limited nuclear war between India and Pakistan, which 100 Hiroshima-sized nuclear weapons were used, 
would create partial nuclear winter. The cities would burn. Five million tons of smoke, smoke and soot would be raised into the stratosphere. Within two weeks, it would circle the world, block the sun's rays, lower temperatures on much of the earth below freezing, destroying agriculture, and that limited nuclear war would, could lead to up to two billion deaths. And that's 100 Hiroshima-sized nuclear weapons. The reality is we've got almost 14,000 nuclear weapons between seven and 80 times as powerful as the Hiroshima bomb. And that's the reality. India and Pakistan almost went to war last year after the um, terrorists killed 40 Indian troops in Kashmir and they bombed each other's countries. And we know that back from the previous one, the former head of the Pakistani army says, uh, well, you can get killed getting hit by a car. You can get killed in a nuclear war. What's the difference? You have to die sometime. This is the kind of people we have making policy. So you've got Trump make America great again and Modi make India great again and, you know, Putin. And, 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 and Trump and Biden are competing in their anti-China rhetoric. Yeah, isn't that something? Larry Wilkerson says when he was uh, in government, uh, in the army, they, they did various war games where they would play out what a conflict with China would look like if there became like a confrontation in the South China Sea. And he says each time they played it, it ended up in nuclear war. So they had to stop the game. And the other thing is that they for years, they did these nuclear war studies about limited nuclear war. OK, so we drop one on the Russians and they drop one on us. And then we negotiate. But study after study found it impossible to reach an endpoint that these these limited nuclear war scenarios don't work in the war games that we've tried to conduct, that they almost always go completely out of control to complete nuclear war. So, um, yeah, we've got it. And it just becomes it's increasingly untenable to maintain these nuclear weapons. As much as there's a new arms, nuclear arms race between the United States and uh, Russia, but to a much lesser extent, apparently, China. Uh, and there's been studies, uh, according to Wilkerson as well, about how many nuclear weapons are really needed to defend the United States. And it's like thousands less than there are. Uh, what, do, what do we know about what the Chinese are doing? The Chinese approach makes much more sense. First of all, they've got a no first use policy, which means they would never use nuclear weapons to initiate a war. Right now, Russia and the United States have about 93% of the world's nuclear weapons. China has had a very different approach. They've got about 300. Well, we have maybe 7,000. They have 300. But what they understand is that 300 is as effective as 7,000 as a deterrent. That what Kennedy during the Cuban Missile Crisis asked McNamara, he said, what, is it, what are the chances, the likelihood that even one Soviet bomb will get through? And McNamara said, it's inevitable. And Kennedy said, even that makes this unthinkable. One nuclear bomb. Uh, Einstein and Russell, the Einstein-Russell Manifesto in 1955, said that if there's a nuclear war and New York, Moscow, and London are destroyed, then within a few hundred years, the human species will recover from that, from those cities being wiped out. 
But the danger is complete annihilation in a full-scale thermonuclear war. What the Chinese understand is that to deter another country from attacking them, 300 nuclear weapons is more than enough of a deterrent. 300 nuclear weapons would end the United States as a nation and probably cause enough pollution in the atmosphere to end to cause billions of deaths uh, worldwide, including in China. Uh, so, but uh, what Trump keeps saying is, I don't want to extend the New Star Treaty unless China's involved. China's got to become part of this too. That's nonsense. Uh, the Chinese fra- uh, arsenal is a fraction of the arsenals of the United States and the, and Russia, and the Chinese are not going to be involved in this. So we need an arms control deal between the United States and Russia immediately, uh, because that's where the real threat is. But we also need to deal with the situation between India and Pakistan, uh, India and China. I mean, there are so many hotspots around the world. The situation in Europe seems to have come down, calmed down a little bit in Eastern Europe from what it was, but that's still a powder keg. Syria could unravel at any point. The situation with North Korea, despite Trump's bluster, has not improved. And so all of these scenarios are still hotspots, which is why the bullet atomic scientist has the hands of the doomsday clock at 100 seconds before midnight, because any one of these could still unravel, spiral out of control. And we hear next to nothing about any of this in any presidential election campaign and most of the mainstream media. It's just not even part of the discourse. No, and it's too bad because Biden could make a big issue out of this. Biden could talk about the New START Treaty and could show what Trump's been saying and show that Trump's been calling for a new arms race and make it clear what that means. And he can put himself on the other side of this and he could even talk about the UN nuclear ban treaty, uh, which the United States doesn't support and neither have any of the other nuclear powers thus far. But the rest of the world, the overwhelming majority of nations in the world have called for the banning of nuclear weapons, which was something, as we mentioned before, that could have happened as early as 1945 or 1946. Henry Wallace fought for this. Uh, the atchison Lilienthal plan in 45 and 46 before the United Nations would have eliminated nuclear weapons. We've had various opportunities. At Reykjavik in 1986, uh, Reagan and Gorbachev came within one word of eliminating all strategic offensive nuclear weapons there. If Reagan had been willing to limit testing of Star Wars to the laboratory for the next 10 years, Gorbachev would have signed the agreement to eliminate nuclear weapons. So we've come close. It's not impossible. And there's no reason for us to give up. There's no reason to even be totally pessimistic about this. The human species is in some ways, potentially evolving positively. We look at how history is being rethought of in the United States in terms of slavery, in terms of Confederate monuments, in terms of women's issues. We can rethink our nuclear history. We can understand that the atomic bombs in World War II were not only unnecessary, they were reprehensible. We can understand that seven of America's eight five-star admirals and generals uh, or opposed to using nuclear weapons, that Truman himself says he went to Potsdam to make sure that the Soviets were coming in. And then he says, when Stalin tells him for coming in, he says, Finney Japs, when the Russians come into the war, 
Truman knew the war was over without using atomic bombs. Let's restudy this history. Let's learn the lessons and let's project them into the present and the future and begin to develop the kind of anti-nuclear movement that we had so powerfully in the 1980s in this country and around the world. But that doesn't exist anymore on the campuses, in the state houses, uh, in in the media. It's it's um, there's been silence about this issue. And we have to try to bring this to people's attention again, because this is the nearest term way of ending life on the planet and not giving ourselves a chance to solve global warming, to solve global poverty, to solve issues of environmental degradation, the other things that we want to solve so that human beings can live the kind of decent life they should be living. All right. Thanks very much for joining us, Peter. Thank you, Paul. And thank you for joining us on the analysis.news podcast. Mm-hmm.